Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. In her latest film, Coda, Sean Hader tells a poignant story of communication, family and coming of age. At our recent member event, fellow director Emerald Fennell spoke to Sean about the experience of directing the film. From working with both deaf and hearing cast and crew, to casting, editing, music and more. We hope you enjoy. Hello, Sean. This is so exciting to talk to you because I absolutely love your film and I think it's incredibly beautiful and moving and sexy. Um, So I guess the first thing I wanted to ask, because you're a very experienced writer and director and you've done a lot of stuff before, um, what is your, what's the night before you start shooting like? the first day of shooting, the night before, what are you doing? Are you like zen or are you wanting to throw up? Um, <laughs> both. Um, I'll do my visual description too quickly. Just I'm Sean Hader. I'm a white woman. I have blonde hair just past my shoulders and I'm wearing a black shirt and a black blazer. I'm so sorry. And I am um, uh, um, Emerald Fennell. I am a white woman with long blonde hair and I'm wearing a pink and blue sweater? Um, I love your question. It's, um, there's so many nerves, you know, you, you go through prep and you sort of, there's always that anxiety and I will never get over the feeling. I remember on my first feature Tallulah walking onto set the first day and we were on location in Manhattan and there was like that line of trucks you know, where you just see, you know, 10 giant movie trucks lined up and you're like, oh my God, this was like, this came out of my brain and now we're here and all these people are here to do it. Um, The first day on Coda, we were shooting at the quarry. That was the first day that we had. And it was that beautiful place where they jump off, you know, Amelia and Ferdiago jumping off, off the quarry. And it's a really magical quarry. You know, it's, these very intense 40 foot cliffs around, you know, with the woods around you. Um, So I woke up the morning we were going to shoot and my sister had put a big note on the mirror, which was adorable because she was staying with me and it was like, you got this, you know, and, and then I showed up early and just sat on the edge of this quarry and went over my shot list. And it was actually a really complicated day that we were starting with. Um, I mean, I always try to get there before everybody else. So I can kind of be in the space alone and and walk myself through my plan for the day. But yeah, I think there's always this, you know, it's that like the 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 first take, the kind of embarking on the movie and all the prep that's gone into it. Um, it helped actually that first day was so complicated. Like we had this quarry and we were on this raft in the middle of the quarry. And my Marine coordinator had rigged up a series of ropes that were attached to each end of the quarry. And the way he was pulling us to these different locations in the quarry was like pulling on these ropes and moving like the camera platform across the water. And we'd worked out this intricate plan because, you know, what the stunt doubles were going to jump off, which cliff and what the, so I had a very intricate first day with us, you know, diagrams and a super laid out plan. Um, but yeah, I think I always feel nerves going in. It's like your crew and finding the vibe and getting everybody going and, and, you know, discovering your actors and how they like to work, I think is always a journey too, because every actor works differently with a director and some actors want a lot of notes and some actors, you know, want just one thing to think about. And, and so it's, it's just that process of kind of stepping in and forming these new relationships. Do you do a sort of um, first morning pep talk to everyone? Usually, I mean, I, I, I think that's just, especially in this case on this film, you know, it was such an unusual experience, I think for so much of the crew. I mean, we had a lot of interpreters on set. We had, you know, uh, not just hearing actors and deaf actors, but deaf crew members and hearing crew members. So it was sort of getting everyone on the same page that like, it was kind of this 
communication experiment. You know, we're all going to work together and we don't quite know where the interpreters need to be. And we're not quite sure how this should go, but we're all in this together. Um, so yeah, usually I think I'll, I'll bring whoever's there the first day and kind of be welcoming and get everybody, you know, on the same page as, as feeling like a team that we're doing this together. I don't know if I made any kind of official speech. I think it was largely about like how it was going to go and how, and how we were going to kind of work out, work out the day and then work out communication as well. Um, and there was a different pace to set definitely on the days when I was working with DefCast. I think we really had to make sure um, there's definitely a vibe, you know, when you're in production where everybody's rushing and it's like, you're going. And, and if you're not on the same page, you have to catch up. And there wasn't, there couldn't be that feeling on this set. Like we really had to make sure that everyone knew what was happening before we started. Um, you know, when we would cut, there was kind of a more, there was a bigger reset every time to just make sure that, you know, we were all communicating and, and it was a really good thing for the set. I actually felt like the focus on communication and, and slowing down the pace of set a little bit was very helpful for the process. I can completely imagine. It definitely sounds like, because as you say, so often you're so up against it, things do get lost in translation. And so it's yeah. really interesting that, on a, that actually on a film where, where that is one of the main sort of, themes I suppose that actually it was kind of easier in some ways for you it sounds like complicated but the communication maybe became clearer how long was the shoot the shoot was 30 days and we were on location in Gloucester and we were all completely on location we didn't do anything you know we didn't build anything or on a set so and it was definitely there were some high stakes shooting I mean we went I remember meeting with my Marine coordinator early on and he had read the script and I'd found him by calling Kenneth Lonergan because Kenny had shot Manchester by the sea, basically in the same town, mostly in Gloucester. And we have a mutual friend and I called him to just be like, you know, I need advice about shooting in this area. Are there any crew people that you really recommend or, you know, no-nos and, and he said, if you hire one person on your set, it's this guy, Joe Borland, who was his Marine coordinator. And he said, our days at sea were our best days at sea, were our best days of the shoot, which is so rare because it's so hard to shoot out on the water. But I remember meeting with Joe really early on and he read the script and he was like, you can't make them dragger fishermen. Like they, this is, can they be lobstermen? And I'm like, why do they, why should they be lobstermen? He's like, well, you know, you put the traps down in the Harbor, you can pull them up. We can shoot in Harbor. If you're going to shoot dragger fishing, you need to go like three miles out to sea and you have to actually go fishing to shoot this kind of fishing. And like, you don't want to do that with a crew. And I was like, I do, I do want to do that with a crew. So he just had this huge challenge of, you know, we went three miles out to sea. We were shooting with a, we, I had found a real captain, this guy, Paul Vitale, and talked him into letting us use his boat. But we had to, all the regulations that are in the movie, you know, we were under those regulations as well. So we had to count for every fish we caught. It all had to be under Paul's, like, catch share of what he was allowed to catch. So basically, we were going fishing with Paul and my actors were just pulling up his catch. Like that's sort of how we, we established it, but it was like adding these, you know, working with deaf cast with Daniel and Troy going out into a really dangerous situation, you know, out open ocean, like three to five foot waves and doing boat to boat transfers and having a camera boat and a, the picture boat and then lots of safety boats and a big whale watch boat that the crew was on. Um, and so that focus on communication that I felt like was so important, even on days when we weren't going to see, it was just like you said, I mean, everybody, there were so many conversations about it. Everyone was sort of taking their time to make sure we were all on the same page. And then when we were going into situations like those fishing days, that felt very high stakes in terms of safety, 
it was just, I think it really helped the production that we were all, you know, so focused on, on how to keep people safe, how to have everybody working as a unit, you know, even when we were on separate boats and, and not necessarily able to communicate so well. Um, and so it was a lot of rehearsal. It was way more rehearsal than I've ever had on a movie. Um, and, and a lot of not just shot listing, but storyboarding and, you know, having real solid plans, shooting plans for our day. And is that so that you can kind of communicate to the non-hearing cast and crew kind of what you mean, like visually kind of what you mean? Is it, or, or is it just really a tool for you to kind of know where? I mean, I think it was mostly a tool for me and, and, and the rest of my crew, but I, but I think, I guess what I'm getting at is I think that the focus that we had to give to communication on set was super beneficial, I think, to the production. And it was something that as I move forward, I think I want to put more energy into that. Even if I'm working on a movie with no deaf cast and no deaf crew, it's like, it's so important that everybody feel like they understand what's happening in the moment. And I do think there can be kind of a frenetic energy that can happen on set where people get left behind or are not brought into the process. And so I think, I think that part of this production was really beautiful. And it, created a kind of family with the crew and the actors that I've haven't had yet. I mean, I think you always have that feeling of like, we're all in it together, but this was a really unique experience of that. It feels very intimate, the, the movie. Yeah. Um, it and, and so that makes total sense, actually, that everyone felt very close. It sort of felt very real. Um, and I want to talk a bit about sex in the film, actually. <laughs> it's just so great. And one of my favourite scenes, actually, is between, um, is between, is it Leo, the brother? Yes. And Gertie, when they're, like, texting in the... So oh, I love that you love that scene. I love that scene. And they're kind of getting closer and closer, and it's just... I don't know. It made, weirdly it made me think of um, the uh, the bit in Persuasion, Jane Austen's Persuasion, when he gives her the letter in the room. There's something so kind of incredible about that, and I I just I feel like it was the first time I've ever really seen. It's the first time I've ever really seen that the the kind of uh, the being forced to communicate in a different way, and that actually being like the complete opposite of like difficult but actually like incredibly thrilling and different and sexy like that's and in general I found that about the movie was that it was so um it felt so real and it treated I don't know it just it just it it felt like everyone was like messy and difficult and kind of mean sometimes and it just um it was just a really eye-opening, clever, beautiful way of introducing us to this to, to this world and like the world of the the code, I guess, the person whose job it is is to be in the middle of everything. And so when it came to working with Amelia, who plays Ruby, I wondered when I was watching it, was that difficult for her? Being obviously it must have been because she must have you know, learn lots of new things, but also like she must have felt slightly on the outside by the nature of the the story too. So how did that work or was it just completely fine? Um, yeah, I mean, there were so, I want to, you have such good thoughts in, in everything you said. So I don't want to miss the first thing, which was about that sexiness of the texting and the, because I found that, I mean, it was interesting, you know, I had been learning sign when I was writing the script. And so I was sort of conversational at that point, although not great, you know, and not fully able to express everything. And so oftentimes when I was hanging out with Troy or Daniel, and even in social situations, like we'd hang out on the weekends and we'd all, you know, get beers and go out on someone's boat in Gloucester and and there were times where like Daniel and I would text with each other or you know, you're sort of looking for ways to how do we bridge this? And, and sometimes if my sign 
wasn't there, you know, you're sort of pantomiming a story that you want to tell, or you're finding ways to connect, you know, a lot more touch or a lot more kind of physicality. And there is something incredibly sexy about ASL because you're literally using your body to talk with someone. And it feels like this very essential form of human connection that we are missing a lot of the time in the hearing world. And I, I remember feeling a bit of culture shock coming out of the movie, going back to the kind of disconnect you can have oftentimes with spoken language where you're kind of talking to fill the space or you feel that you should be talking or the words coming out are not connected to something you're really feeling in that moment. And it's very hard, you know, sign is not just your hands, it's your face, it's your emotions, it's the space around you. You're having to embody the thing that you're talking about as you're talking about it. So in a way you have to live it again. Um, there's no future or past tense. You tell everything like it's in the moment and then you put it in the future or you put it in the past. So it's a very present way to be. And I think there's something sexy. I think one of the reason hearing audiences are very drawn to this family as they're watching this is it's a super connected family. And it's almost, I've had so many people say to me, I wish I connected with my dad that way, or I wish my family felt the way that family feels. Um, and I feel that way about sign. I think it's something in the nature of the language. And for Amelia and I, back to the second part of your question, which is, you know, she was coming, she was new to it as well. She had been studying sign for nine months with a deaf teacher in Toronto where she was shooting something else. And, and so we were both really new to the language, but like so hungry to learn both of us. So at the center, you know, on those days when it was the family, Amelia and I were not using an interpreter. Generally, we were trying to be immersed within, you know, deaf culture and be communicating in ASL. And it was interesting for Amelia, I think, to find her space in the family because I think she was intimidated coming in. She was the outsider. And um, there's a line in the script where she says, I'm always the one on the outside. It's always the three of you and then me. And I think that was a dynamic for her as an actress coming in. Um, Troy and Marley knew each other, you know, and so did Daniel. Troy and Daniel had done uh, Spring Awakening on Broadway together. Um, Marley had worked with... Daniel before, you know, so they had kind of a bond already coming in and it was just so wild to watch Amelia find her way into the family. And then in a way, almost become a coda on the set, because when we were shooting, you know, oftentimes if I'm directing and I don't want to stop a shot or call cut, you will, you will say, you know, you're shooting over an actor's shoulder and they lean over a little bit and they're blocking the frame and you need to like scooch them back the other way. Well, if I was doing that in the middle of the take, instead of having an interpreter come in, I'd be like, you know, Amelia Troy's shoulder is blocking the frame. And then she would sign to him, you know, to have him move over a little bit. And so in a way she became the coda within our shooting dynamic as well. And so I think that was an interesting thing to watch her find her place in the family, but like as actors as well. It's a lot of responsibility for her as yes. well. <laughs> that's what the film, that's why I think it's so, it's just um, so insightful about that. And, and one of the things that really, I think the relationship between Ruby and her mother is just so beautifully drawn. And I think that scene when she says, if I was, when she says she wants to sing and her mother is like, Pissed. If I was blind, would you want to paint? If I was blind, would you paint? And it, I just thought that's so brilliant. The, the, the unbelievably finely drawn codependent relationship between this family, which is, as you say, like both incredibly enticing because they are all amazing. You do want to be in this family, but it's also like super unhealthy because yeah. they're just too close. Yeah. And I wondered um, how much of that was something right from the beginning that you wanted to, like where was the starting point for, of this for you? Like, was that it? you know there's usually like a little like glimmer that makes you go yes I get I get I get this I want to be the person who makes this 
And I just wondered what that was for you with this film. Well, I think, so it was based on a French film called La Famille Bellier. And when I saw the original film, um, there was a missed opportunity at the center of the film. Like it was an amazing character and story. And yet it felt like what you were talking about, the dynamics within this family and really exploring the deep intricacies of family dynamics and how the same thing, yes, can feel like a burden, but it can also feel empowering, you know? And when I started talking to CODAs and researching, there were a lot of dualities. There was, you know, yes, I felt like I had this incredible responsibility from a young age. At the same time, I was in control and I was, you know, able to just like sort of be disseminating information to adults and deciding who heard what and sort of being, I mean, there was a weird power dynamic in, in being that important at a young age and feeling in control and feeling a lot of self-worth based on that role. So I like when you said that everybody's messy, because I think even Ruby's pretty messy and she's inserting herself all sorts of places that she doesn't need to. I mean, I love the scene when Leo's at the auction house and he's got his iPad out and he's doing fine negotiating with the guy and Ruby sort of comes in and, you know, master of the domain, her own domain and takes charge of the situation. He's like, get the fuck out of here. So I think playing with a lot of those things and Leo is almost the character, I think, who can see the dysfunction in the family the clearest. And, you know, I think Ruby and her parents you know, they've sort of come to rely on her as a bit of a crutch. And also the fact that, you know, accessibility is still so reliant on having resources, on being in a big city where you, you know, have access to interpreters, where there would be an interpreter at the local health clinic at, you know, in, if you're in New York or LA, you'll probably find that. But in a small town like Gloucester, it's, it's hard to find. So, I don't know. I liked that there was no villain in the film, that all of the kind of dynamics and tension come from those familial strains that I just felt like were were in my own family. And I come from a family, I mean, my parents, a lot of these parents are taken from my parents. I mean, I had two artist parents who were way too open about their sex lives with my friends who were totally out of line at the dinner table. You know, I would get in trouble at school for swearing and they'd be like, what would your parents say if they heard you talk like this? And I'm like, that is how my parents talk. That is why I talk like this. Um, And a lot of the things I think in the dynamic of the family, as I was taking this story and trying to make it my own, it felt like I had to make it as personal as possible. So I think that dynamic where, you know, everyone who came over to my house when I was a kid was like, oh my God, your family's amazing. You guys are like, it's like four best friends and you're all on top of each other and you all love each other. And yet in a way that can be so suffocating and so hard to find your own identity within that. And, you know, I still laugh that my husband comes home with me to visit my parents and like my sister goes to walk the dog and my dad's like, well, I'll go with you. And then my mom's like, well, I'll go too. And then I'm like, I'll go. And David's like, why does everyone have to go walk the dog together? Like one person can just walk the dog. Like you guys are the most codependent little like unit. And so I think I was probably exploring a lot of the dynamics within my own family. Um, And the way humor is a buffer, I think a lot of times for the way that we relate or the way we can engage. And there's a lot of unspoken simmering underneath the humor. Um, So yeah, I think it was just like finding my way into that. And then, and then looking at, you know, you talked about the, the mom daughter relationship. It's like, it was important to me that these characters are flawed and messed up and not defined by their deafness. So like Jackie is a narcissist. Like she doesn't say if I was blind, would you want to paint because she's deaf and she's hurt? You know, I think it's coming out of pure 
narcissism of like, well, you are clearly a teenager who's doing everything in reaction to me. And the only reason you would be pursuing something is as a fuck you to me. So I think there's just a kind of interesting coming of age for everyone in the movie um, that the parents have to evolve and grow up as well. It's, it's so, it makes so much sense that because I think the family just feels so unbelievably real. Also the family you describe is quite similar to my own. So I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, uh, but, it, but it felt so real. And honestly, I think this movie, and, and I mean this as a compliment, it, it uh, would be just as gripping, even if no, nobody in the film was deaf too. Like the, the characters are so fascinating. It's an extra like brilliant gene, like fascinating layer, but they're just, we recognize all of them. So like completely. And that I just think, I don't know. It's so it's just, um, and it's just not a family dynamic I've ever seen before, you know, kind of so, so like specifically, drawn and I loved it so much and I just want to talk a bit about casting because again like obviously they're all so good at it yeah and you buy you buy the history so you said that they know each other a little bit obviously when you're making a film like this it's presumably the casting process a little bit more complicated did you have an idea of who you wanted to go to or how did it work I mean coming in I was, you know, I was an outsider coming into this world. I was, you know, uh, definitely felt like I needed a massive education even to begin writing the script. Um, And so a lot of the inroads that I made as I was kind of trying to give myself an education, I mean, I remember reaching out and just going like, I need deaf consultants to read the script. I need people involved with me from a really early stage. And um, Elliot Page introduced me to Hillary Back, who's a deaf actress who started teaching me ASL. And then Hillary was very tapped into like the acting community in LA and sort of gave me a sense of, oh, you really need to go to Deaf West and you need to reach out to that theater community, which is an amazing theater community in LA, um, that Troy has been a member of for 30 years. And there are these incredible productions where every character is dual cast with a hearing actor and a deaf actor. And so it's ASL and spoken language together. And it's this really heightened experience of language when you go see these plays. And, you know, and I saw Troy in an Edward Albee play at Deaf West. And I thought, um, at home at the zoo. Um, and he was incredible. Like he's very charismatic and he's funny. And he's, I mean, it was a very different character. He was kind of a neurotic intellectual, you know, it wasn't Frank, but he was so interesting. And then when I met with Marley Matlin, I brought you know, I said, well, who, who would you think of for Frank? And she said, oh my God, you have to see this actor, Troy Kotzer. And I'm like, I've seen that actor. I've seen him on stage twice. I also saw him in our town where he was playing the stage manager. Um, so Deaf West was a huge resource because I realized going in, I just didn't know how many deaf actors there were out there. You don't know what that talent pool is like. And you're kind of going like, are there going to be two options for each of these roles? Are there going to be 20 options for each of these roles? There are a lot of deaf actors, mostly working in theater, I think, because there just haven't been roles on screen. There's been some TV that's come along, but it's really, you know, few and far between. And so um, DJ Kurz, who's the artistic director of Deaf West, was really helpful for me in connecting me to people that he thought might be right. Um, my casting directors just did a very wide search. So, you know, Daniel was living in Detroit and auditioned and I met him, um, you know, over Zoom or it was before Zoom. I feel like it was Skype before Zoom, like busted out in the pandemic. Um, but, and so, and so Troy, I was pretty set on Troy. Once I had seen Troy, he was hard to beat. And when he came in and auditioned, he just like was the guy. He had like, he wears these little like fisherman's caps. Um, 
his name sign is this because Troy, cause he wears like a little brimmed cap all the time. And it just felt very right for the character. And he just looked like a guy who'd been out at sea his whole life. Um, and Daniel, there were a lot of, a lot of guys who were great at that age, you know, for that Leo role. And I just felt like Daniel got him, you know, he got that character. He had understood that kind of, you know, simmering sibling anger and rivalry and love at the same time. Um, Amelia was the hardest person to find. I mean, we saw over, I saw over a hundred girls probably for that part. And I don't know how many my casting directors saw, but it was just so hard to find someone who was in almost every scene in the movie who had to carry the film, um, who was 17 years old, who was going to sing and have a voice that was so impressive that it would catch the eye of a music teacher. And, um, and then also was going to have to learn to sign. And so we looked for a real coda, but then we couldn't find the singing voice combined with someone who already knew how to sign. And then I, I remember I had like gotten to the end of that process and I'd found someone that I, that I liked. And I was like, okay, I think this is Ruby. And I was ready to pull the trigger. And then my casting director called me and was like, no, no, you know, you need to watch one more tape. I really think this is Ruby. It's this actress, Amelia Jones, and she's British. And I'm like, oh my God, on top of everything else that I'm asking her to do, she's also going to be doing an American accent. Like this is truly a lot of things to ask. And then I saw her tape and it just, she was Ruby from the moment that I saw her. She had such an amazing quality as an actress and, and she's, every thought she thinks flickers across her face. Like she's just so present and alive on screen and has such a deep well of, you know, subtext going on that you can feel. And, um, and it was amazing. And then she just worked so hard. Um, she really dove in and, and just had voice lessons and sign lessons and, then again, with those guys was going out on the fishing boats and waking up at 3 a.m. to go out with local fishermen and learn how to gut cod and tell if a lobster was pregnant. And <laughs> Oh, wow. I mean, those are, look, those are going to be useful skills for her for the future. But I now- feel like you should know how to gut a fish if you, you know, in life. <laughs> a thousand. So it's more I want to know which lobsters are pregnant. That's going to be a big. A, it's a, a big weird trick. Thing. It's all that you have to kind of like flip them over and look under their tail, and then and then you have to be able to throw the female ones back overboard if they're of like a breeding age. It's all, we learned. We learned a lot about that. The fish. Is amazing. Okay, but I just should say so. Um, we're also taking questions from people who are watching. So um, I'm very bad at the techno- technological side of things, but please do. Put it in the chat, I think in the chat bit. Is that what we're doing? Probably. Please write any questions that you have. Uh, uh, and then and then that will, and then we can ask them. Um, but in the meantime, so yeah, so she was amazing. How did you choose both sides now? That was not the song I wrote in the script initially. Oh, will you say I know. It or do you want to keep it? It was Landslide by Stevie Nicks. Oh. Um which has been used a lot. So I sort of was like, when I wrote it, I was like, I don't know. It might be too lyrically. It's like very, you know, a little maybe on the on the nose for what she's saying at the end, but it's a beautiful song. I've always loved it. So, and then once I heard a hundred girls audition with Landslide, <laughs> it was like, I can never hear this song again. <laughs> Even my kids, like I'd be playing audition tapes and my, my kids were like, please stop playing that song (laughs) because it was just, but I also think we had trouble with the rights. And so then it was like, how do you, I mean, the two really tricky songs in the film, one was the duet, you know, that Marvin Gaye, Tammy Terrell song, you're all I need to get by because you were going to hear it five times in the film and it had to serve all these narrative purposes. Like it needed to be a song that this teacher would assign. Then it needed to be, um, you know, a song where she could sort of fall in love with this boy and have this romantic moment of kind of young teenage tension. 
And then it had to evolve and be this moment with her dad where the lyrics took on this whole other meaning and meant something else. So that song I had written into the script, but I never thought we would get it. And I had done a mass search to find a non-cheesy duet that would serve all these purposes. And it's really hard to find. And so that was in the script. And I remember my music supervisor, we made a deal with Sony for the music. And she sent me a list of like available songs that we could use um, within this package. And I like found Marvin Gaye on it immediately and then looked and saw that song and was so thrilled that I could keep that song. So then with the end song, it just, we went through so many ideas. And then I think it was Nick Baxter, who was on my music team and Alex Petsavas, my music supervisor. And they said, what about both sides now, Joni Mitchell? And I'm such a Joni Mitchell fan. And that is one of my favorite songs. And I never thought, A, that we would get it. Um, and then also it was an interesting it was a very difficult song for Amelia to take on because I think she was new to singing. She'd never had a voice lesson before this. It was a really taking on Joni Mitchell felt like she was intimidated by that. But then the more we explored the lyrics, the more excited I felt about that song because it was so on point. It's like the whole song is about perspective. It's about changing perspective. It's about life evolving you as a person. So you start to kind of view the world through different eyes. And I think the CODA position is all about perspective and having to see the world through the deaf perspective and the hearing perspective at all times. And then when I started reading about Joni Mitchell and what she has said about that song, she called that song the end of her childhood. Um, that that song was one of, it was the one of the first songs she ever wrote and it was really at a point where she said, I was letting go of childhood fantasy and facing adult reality. And that the song marked the end of her childhood. And when I read that, it was just like, this is perfect. And so Joni Mitchell gave us the song and it was just a beautiful thing. And, um, and then I was very nervous to know if she'd seen the movie and how she felt about the song. And apparently she has seen it and she was very happy with how, how the song was used. Um, That's amazing. I, I'm just quickly going to dive in because we've got lots yeah. of questions. Yes. So, so, so. Were you conscious of how your visual choices would be influenced by having so much of film and sign language, i.e. more limited in terms of close-ups and needing to see people's hands, et cetera? Yes. Yes. Um, very good question because it was, uh, one of the things early on when I was talking with, um, deaf friends, it was like, what bugs you when you see ASL on screen or you see deaf characters portrayed on screen. And one of the biggest things was cutting off the frame so that you cannot see people's hands. Um, you see Sophia right now, like her frame is big enough that you can see all of her signing. And the moment you come in, even where you and I are in the frame, you, you're cutting off the language and yet you don't want to shoot your whole movie in a medium shot because you want to sort of still have cinematic language and be able to use a close up and be able to, you know, have kind of an interesting visual element with your camera. So my DP and I really watched a lot. Like we did a lot of rehearsal and we're, we're kind of, very cognizant of like, how can we use the camera, keep signs in frame and also making discoveries. Like if you're over someone's shoulder this way, but they're signing high here, I might not have to cut to them for the thing. I can read their sign over their shoulder or, you know, sort of just figuring out like constructing a lot of blocking within the frame so that the movement of the scene which you would normally do with the camera and with camera movement was coming from the actors as opposed to coming from the camera. Um, so in a way it was a very organic shooting style where we were trying to stay out of the way. And then it really set up a lot of stuff rhythmically in the edit as well, because, you know, you might make a choice in a scene, um, you know, if it's you and I, and we're in a scene and, and maybe I just keep the camera on you the whole scene because you're the important character and you're hearing my voice off screen, but I'm really on your face. 
well, we couldn't really do that because the visuals are the language. So it sets up a cutting pattern as well, where you're cutting to the person who's talking every time they're talking. Um, So there was a lot of kind of experimenting for me and trying to figure out like how to pace the film and let the ASL conversation guide the pace. Um, And that was the reason that rehearsal was so important is I felt like that fight scene in the living room where it's like the four of them and they're all fighting and the whole scene is in sign and it's kind of pinging back, you know, they're interrupting each other. And, um, and it was fun to me that there's a lot in ASL conversation and in deaf culture, which is really physical. So if you want some attention, someone's attention, you stomp on the floor or you wave in their face or you bang the table. And so there was a lot of kind of using those moments to, cut between the shots and, um, but it was new for me. And a lot of it was watching. So it was like my actors rehearsing the ASL masters who were the two women that I had on set, who were kind of my deaf eyes behind the camera on the ASL and working with Ann Tomasetti a lot to kind of choreograph these scenes and make sure we were catching the signs within the choreography. It's amazing. Speaking of the edit, what is your favorite like part of the process? Because I find personally the edit to be the, the hardest bit. Um, uh, but some people obviously like find shooting miserable and can't wait to get into the edit to reshape it. What, where are you like happiest, do you think, or do you love it all? I mean, I think shooting is so exciting because you're on set. I mean, my my favorite part of the process is that relationship with the actors. I mean, I love, I love that process. I love working with an actor and with actors to kind of find a scene, the relationship with my DP, you know, to kind of figure out how to cover it. So I think that part is very exciting. Um, And it's physical and you're in it. And there's kind of a rush that comes along with shooting as well. And the edit is a very different pace and experience and and it has an enormous amount of frustration as you're kind of facing all of your failures in the edit you know you're like wow that scene really didn't work and yet um so on this film I had the most extreme edit editorial experience I've ever had where we cut over 30 scenes from the movie I think we cut 35 scenes from the movie and I, I can't there was believe that because it feels so perfect and how did you do how 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 did you do that well I think there was so much honestly I think as I was writing you know there's a part of my process as a writer where I really see everyone as the protagonist of the movie so you know this could be a whole movie about the teacher this could be a whole movie just about Leo this could be a whole movie and so really arcing out everybody's journey in a way where they have a full and complete journey. And sometimes I think that ends up in the writing and it shouldn't, you know what I mean? It was kind of like, do we really need to meet the teacher's whole family and know why he's teaching here and get to know his wife? And, um, you know, there was a lot in the fishing community with that storyline of kind of what the fishermen were struggling with. There was a lot more Miles and Ruby. I think there was that romance was was a more intricate arc there was a whole Leo Gertie story of kind of their courtship and which would be an awesome other movie. <laughs> yes. Can you, can we. Emerald wants to see that movie. That's going to be. This is my, this is my movie. I just love well, I watch all of those movies because I think it's amazing, but, but also that strikes me as just incredibly difficult because that, you know, if you're shooting for 30 days, that's like a scene a day that you're having to lose, which like just in terms of pure work must be kind of, Oh, it's so perfect. So you don't miss any of it, but I can imagine emotionally for you, like kind of devastating and difficult. I think I'm less precious. You know, I think back on my first film and I don't think I could have done that with Tallulah. Like, I think I, because you know what went into shooting and it's very hard. I think sometimes as a director to be like, am I going to lose that fishing scene that we spent you know, had seven boats out to sea and we got that thing and there's that beautiful shot. And I think I was much more um, 
And my editor was a great partner. Jero Brisson was a great partner for me and kind of going, nope, you don't need it. Nope, you don't need it. Nope, get it out. You know, and I think it was it was freeing actually to come in with that, you know, let me forget that I was the director on this. Let me forget that I was the writer on this. You know, let me come in almost like I'm new to the process. And what is this story about? This is a story about a family. Mm. And it is about Ruby and her parents and her brother and anything that's not telling that story felt like it could be removed to kind of make that core story as emotional and strong as possible. So, but it was an interesting, I cut my own daughter out of the movie and it is the second time I've done this because I did it on my first movie too, which is like brutal at this point where Um, I mean, the first movie, she was like two, so she doesn't really remember being in it, but this one, like she had a whole little scene and she was great. And I was like, I don't need it. And I'm going to cut my own kid out. And now she tells people, she's like, my mom cut me out of her movie. It feels feels like something Jackie might do. Jackie might do it. I'm sorry. She might do it. Look, Uh, you've got to literally kill your darlings, which you did. And so that makes... Total sense. Do you, I know we're running out of time and there's a great question that I just want to ask you in the chat, but just quickly, when you finish shooting, do you leave the editor for a couple of weeks to let them assemble or do you go straight in? Because I, with my friends who do the same thing, it seems to be like a 50-50 split and I'm kind of fascinated by who does and who doesn't. What do you do? I let the editor do an assembly. (laughs) Yeah, because I just want to see... I want to see someone's instincts um, outside of me. Like, I think it's fresh eyes on the story. Um, I think watching that assembly is often painful, right? Because it's just like, you're like, no, no, you didn't. But I think there can be discoveries in that as well, where it's like, oh, okay, that that is a different way into that scene. Um, so on this Giroux was cutting while we were shooting. So he was assembling. And actually that was really helpful because like I was saying with the pacing of some of the ASL scenes and how those conversations would work. So for him to be assembling, you know, a quick cut of those scenes and sending it to me. So if we had other stuff coming up, I could kind of take that, you know, if there were things that I needed to adjust, I was able to, and that I've never done that before. And that was amazing. Um, And then he, yeah, he put together a cut of the film um, and I came in and watched and that partnership was amazing. And I think, you know, yeah, editorial can be really painful. I think in this case, it was exciting because I had this new ruthless attitude (laughs) towards my film where I don't know where that had come from. Like, I, I honestly think it came from show running because on Little America, I showrun, I'm one of the co-showrunners on Little America. And oftentimes as a showrunner, you're coming in and you're recutting other directors. You know, the director comes in and does their cut. And then you as a producer come in and you recut the cut. And it's just sort of how TV works. And so in a way, I think having worn that hat a bit and having come in and, and cut someone else's thing, I could bring a little bit of that energy to my own project, which I had never done before. Um, That's well, it also sounds very kind of wise because you can't, it's impossible. If you get too emotionally involved, it's just too complicated. Um, Final question. Uh, I loved your film. This is Paul Wilkins. I loved your film. What was the most most challenging scene to direct? To direct. Um, the first scene I thought thought of, but that was honestly cutting was the concert scene was really hard to cut. And we recut it many, 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 many times to try to get it right. Um, was the, sorry to, to interrupt, was the, the, the silence in that scene, was that scripted or was that something yeah. it was? It was scripted and I had done a lot of like, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to be in the deaf perspective and there were a couple places in the movie where I wanted to do that. And so I'd actually, um, had amazing conversations and, and I even, Anne Tomasetti, one of my ASL masters wrote me this beautiful essay 
about what it's like to um, be following a hearing conversation when you're deaf and like be at a table with a bunch of hearing people that are having a rapid fire conversation. And she wrote me this beautiful essay that I feel like she should publish, which is just, you know, you catch someone's lips, you lip read half a line and then someone across the table laughs and you look over and you realize you missed a joke over there. And there's a lot of kind of being a detective to go into that. And so in a way, the concert scene, I think both shooting it and trying to break form with like the traditional, you know, big concert scene in a movie where you have this choir on stage and they're amazing. You know, we had a real choir from Berkeley. We were doing all the music live. So you sort of wanted your instincts were to want to film the stage and cover that. And yet the real story was happening in the audience with Frank and Jackie and Leo and with them watching the audience. And so that was a challenge, I think, just to think about how to, how to make that real perspective shift and make it feel powerful. Um, Oh, the hardest scene was the Coast Guard, the Coast Guard boarding. Um, That was wild. It happened. It like felt so real. It was real. I mean, we were doing it. So the guy who boarded the boat was on our Marine crew and he's actually the Harbor master in Gloucester. His name's TJ. And he, um, you know, he could be a movie star. Let's just TJ. TJ was amazing. And he was like, let me just do this boarding. He, He was in the Coast Guard for so many years. He's like, I've done hundreds of these. Let's just get it in one. But it was a very... I mean, I don't know. Being at sea was just incredibly hard. I mean, we were out on these little boats. We were in three to five foot waves. I was so nauseous the whole time. And I was just trying to keep it together because I'm like, the director cannot be puking over the side of the boat. Like, this is not okay. (laughs) So I was like determined not to be that person. And yet a lot of our crew was. um, So a lot of those days at sea were like the crew betting on who was going to be the first to puke. (laughs) You know, it was always like a makeup or hair person. I feel like it was always that department that, that got sick first. Um, so those days were really challenging. And, um, but I think in terms of thinking about perspective, the the concert was also a big challenge. It was so, I think what I loved so much about the film in general, and it makes so much sense now that you're talking about it, is just, is all of those things, you know, the fishing, it makes total sense that you say that it was a real fisherman's boat, because I was sort of so, the thing that often takes you out of films like this is that you can tell an actor is pretending to stomp on a fish's head, for example. (laughs) But what I loved was it just, it felt absolutely real and and casual you know it didn't feel felt like you were there and it was and it was um just so un so un I don't know how I'm going to sorry Sophie (laughs) this is just going to be like how many times can we say um it never felt look we've all learned to fish and sex and all of the learning that had been done on this movie felt very um uh lightly done and in a very like clever and pleasurable way and I, I can't imagine how difficult that must have been to make it look so real and easy in such a short period of time do you think for your next project are you now like wanting to do you like making things difficult and complicated would you kind of want to do that again to sort of was the rush kind of addictive I don't know. I mean, my first film, we had a baby through the entire movie and we had eight babies playing one baby. And that was the hell on that movie. Like it was just, and I was seven months pregnant while we were shooting. So I was just like covered in babies and had this enormous belly. So it felt like, oh, nothing could be harder than that. And then I was like, no, I want to shoot on real fishing boats and and I want a real live choir and I want all the music to be recorded live on set. And, you know, and we're going to set up, you know, a whole communication, new way of communicating on the set. I actually think, I mean, all of movie making is a challenge, right? I mean, it doesn't, I think the things you think are going to be huge issues often aren't. And then giant problems arise from things that, seem like they shouldn't be giant problems. So I think that kind of creative problem solving 
is just a part of movie making. I mean, I think, and some of my favorite scenes have come out of being under intense pressure um, and having to make decisions. I mean, the scene on the beach with Leo and Ruby, we had lost our location and we'd remembered that beach because we'd been scouting something else there. So we just went down to that beach and shot. And I love that location. And I love what happened performance wise there, the scene on the back of the truck. I think I had two takes of that um, with, with, you know, Amelia and Troy. And one of the things I love that happened in this, because we had such a short amount of time to shoot it. And because I knew something emotional would happen between them, we rolled two cameras at the same time. We were really intimate. We were minimal with our lighting. We just got in there and this experience happened. And what happened on screen was intensely emotional. And I don't know if it would have happened in the same way had we spent an hour lighting and, you know, had the actors do it, you know, six different setups in all different ways or had some big shot design. It was like, we could just jump in there with two cameras and they did it twice, I think. And it was beautiful. And we had it. Um, and again, in Tallulah, my favorite shot in Tallulah is like, we'd lost the subway and Elliot Page and I had to steal that shot with my DP and run down another subway platform with a live train coming in and real people getting off the train and completely grab this shot in the moment. And at the time, I remember wanting to cry because I felt like this is such an important in the moment in the movie and maybe we've blown it. But sometimes those moments actually create a kind of resourceful creativity that lead to something really beautiful. I think that is just the best, most, yeah, I think it's the truest thing. Um, can I ask one more question? That's just two, two seconds. <laughs> but with that in mind, you're given $200 million and six months to make your next movie. Does it fill you with dread? Does that fill you with dread? Or are you like, yes, finally, I can do what I want? Um, maybe, maybe that is the next movie you're doing. I don't know. No, I'm just, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. Like, how do you hold on to the things that you hold true or find important as the stakes get higher, as the budget gets bigger, as the pressures of opinions coming in become more intense and the, there's more voices in the mix. And I think I was really left alone to make this movie. I mean, I was complete, the movie that you see is the movie I wanted to make. And I was left alone. My director's cut was pretty much what you see. So there is something intense about thinking about like, how do you hold on to yourself? How do you choose your battles? How do you know when to stand your ground and say, no, this is compromising something so major in, in what I feel in my gut, even though you're all telling me this. So I think I have signed, like, yes, it would be amazing to have a bucket load of money to go make a movie. At the same time, what that comes along with is a lot of voices and a lot of pressures and things kind of pulling you and steering you maybe away from your own voice. So I don't know. That's an interesting proposition. I think you just have to find a way to stay super centered, right? And like, and remain yourself and, and hold true to, to what you stand for in terms of your story. But I don't know. I'm into, you can tell me all about it. Cause I feel like you're, you're further down the road. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not. And I'm, I, I just, what, what you said really, I really felt because I loved making Promise of Women so much because of the things you described, because we had to do it, because we had to do it together because it was really difficult. And this, this an idea of having too much time and too much money makes me think, where does that go? Is that good? Does the urgency kind of fall away? But I don't, I don't know. I'm the same as you. It's like, it would be great, but also would it be, is it impossible to keep that tension that you, I think you need to make something really personal and interesting. Well, and what I loved, I mean, I'm, I'll gush about your movie for a second, but what I loved about your film is I felt like I was watching the emergence of a, of a true voice. Like I felt uncompromised and it felt like an auteur movie where it was like, 
whatever you think is the tone of this, I'm defining the tone. I'm defining the story. I'm defining the rules. And it was so powerful in that way where it wasn't trying to be anything that had come before. It was setting like a new path. And so, yes, I don't know. I don't know. Like once you start to kind of end up in systems where it's like, well, this is how we do things. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe the way that you've done things is not the only way. And and how do you kind of stick to that kind of very pure expression of who you are within the, the higher stakes, higher budget situation? I don't know. I hope that people do it. <laughs> just, you do it. Exactly. Sorry. I'm so sorry. We've gone over time. I just, uh, there are just too many questions I wanted to ask. Thank you, Emerald. Thank you. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.